reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're still recovering from celebrating Cinco de Cuatro. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and 95.3 FM W237CZ Hudsonville, and now 88.3 FM WPJC in Pontiac, Illinois. Say what? I know, we're expanding. And as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, and uh, hello to all of our Illinois listeners. And Mr. Justin Schieber. Hello, Dave. Cool hat. Thank you. It looks a lot like yours. And, of course, our returning champion, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. If I would have known it was Old Man Hat Day, I would have got one. But I didn't, so. It was actually don't take a shower before coming into record day for me. <laughs> I have lots of days like that. <laughs> Most of them. Uh, so. that, that's what's great about radio. Nobody's going to be bothered by that but us. Absolutely. Uh, so making up for lost time, we've got a jam-packed episode of God Thinks Like You. We've also got another counter-apologetics to put a cap on our martyrdom series, as well as some polyatheism, a stranger than fiction, and more. Let's start off here with a news item um, uh, about some folks carrying on the torch, uh, pardon the pun, (laughs) of a famous (laughs) martyr. That was purely accidental, I have to say. (laughs) Jeremy, why don't you tell us about... One of those unintentional puns? Yeah, we're talking about the Branch Davidians. Uh, There's an article on NPR, Two Decades Later, Some Branch Davidians Still Believe, by John Burnett. The headline pretty much says it all. And a lot of our listeners are young and probably have no frame of reference for the Branch Davidians. If you don't, uh, 20 years ago, in 1993, on February 28th, a strike force from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided a compound that was led by David Koresh, uh, who was claiming to be a kind of a reincarnation of Jesus. After the raid began, a fire began in the complex, and uh, as many as 80 people died, including kind of uh, uh, some of them killed each other using gunfire, mm-hmm. turned their guns on each other. Uh, it was a huge tragedy. And, and of, of course, course Koresh himself died. government screw up, too. Yes. That uh, fueled a lot of the the anti-government movement that was, were the Timothy McVeigh, mm-hmm. the Oklahoma City bomber, and yeah. a lot of these other – it co- sort of fits into their rhetoric that the government is hassling people, trying to take your guns away and such. Yep. And, right. and, and to be fair, David Koresh was a lunatic, and he did some very awful things, a lot of uh, child rape well, and that sort of thing that comes with a lot of these cult that's leaders. That's how they but, justified raiding the yeah. compound was that they thought the kids in there were, were going to be at risk, so that's yes. why they did it. Yeah, they just really botched the And job. then they ended up killing a lot of the kids. Yeah. yeah. But the Davidians are still around. They have a new church now, and uh, they have a new compound with at least 12 people living there. 
at least twelve. Uh, yeah, a set of uh, that's all you need for disciples. In a, uh, in a set of um, <laughs> yep, they live in some mobile homes uh, near the original Branch Davidian site hmm. in Waco. They have a monument to the victims that died in the 1993 raid. They also have a new pastor. Interesting getting into their heads. The article interviews several survivors, all of them who, uh, all of the survivors that were put into jail Hmm. are now out. They're free. Right. It's been 20 years. Many still believe, including uh, Clive Doyle, 72-year-old Australian Texan. And uh, he goes he goes to Bible study with the Branch Davidians every Saturday. Wow. Clive Doyle says, "Quote: We survivors of the nineteen ninety of nineteen ninety three are looking for David and all those that died either in the shootout or in the fire. We believe God will resurrect this special group. I would like to see some divine intervention for God to vindicate His people and all those that have suffered over the years for the truth." Those who have been misunderstood have been mocked, ridiculed, and thrown in prison. The leader of the new cult explaining his motivation says, I, quote, I came back here after the slaughter and I felt that the Lord has anointed me and appointed me to be the leader. I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm a teacher of righteousness. And that's the only thing I claim. Later that doesn't on, sound too lofty or <laughs> grandiose. <laughs> that's it. Teacher of, teacher of righteousness. righteousness. Yeah. <laughs> no and big deal. Uh, later he says, the United States has, fall, has to fall in order for the one w- world order to be set up. Especially if there's war in the Middle East, that's when we're going to see Branch Davidians start scrambling to find out what the truth is and oh. where they need to be. And uh, I thought he wasn't a prophet. Nice. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. But, uh, yeah, we kind of scratch our heads when... People who are predicting the apocalypse is going to come, you know, miss their date and hmm. still go on believing. But even stranger when people lost their lives to this guy, being still hopeful that he's coming back. I, I guess one takeaway we can get from this is if we want to stamp out uh, these types of cults, um, violence isn't the way to do it. Because what have they done? They've made him uh, a martyr, not to segue too keenly into counter-apologetics as opposed to eventually David Koresh would have uh, hopefully been shown to be the fraud and the the kook that he was. But instead, because he died, he became this leader and now his his cult carries on. So once again, violence, not the answer. Well, look what happened. When, I mean, you could argue that the even the Jonestown massacre was – you know, I mean, not to take blame away from Jim Jones, but mm-hmm. one of the reasons he justified that was that once the congressman came and visited and all the authorities were coming down on them, They're threatening their in. Yep. family members, that he felt he could make a case to his people that we're under pressure. This is mm-hmm. it. This is right. the end. Feeling threatened. And, and even now, though, one parallel is you interview some – I've seen some TV specials where they have these survivors after Jonestown, and they're very similar to these type of people where you'd think that from our perspective, it would just be so clearly discredited. Yeah. It's a yeah. cult. The guy was a you know a psychopath. Right. But for many of these people, they have ambiguity. They're sort of like, yeah, you know, things went on, but whatever. But there was a lot of positive aspects, too. It's not entirely clear from their perspective that it's a black or white issue of Mm -hmm. this guy was a a psycho, a religious psychopath and all my views were wrong. Mm -hmm. They often want to retain part of it by saying, but we had the right idea in this aspect or that aspect. Right, right. He just took it too far or whatever. And some go further and, you know, round the wagons even more Mm -hmm. and just hold true to the idea that. All evidence aside, this was real. If only we had a concept of dissonance that was cognitive, I would name this concept. <laughs> yeah. I would name it, if there's such a concept existed, cognitive dissonance. 
Well, speaking of cognitive dissonance, <laughs> as we often are, we have a uh, we have a another counter about apologetics to uh, wrap up the series. We started two episodes: the myth of martyrdom. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter apologetics. In the first part of the series, we learned that martyrdom accounts, uh, that the martyrdom accounts of the early Christian church were exaggerated and uh, often made up whole cloth. Uh, there was no widespread systemic persecution of Christians. And we also learned in that first episode, I thought this was one of the more interesting points to come out, that uh, martyrdom wasn't even a serious fear of a lot of Christians in the first three centuries, right? We talked about <laughs> groups of Christians who were actively looking for someone who might martyr them. Uh, and we talked about the concept in Roman culture, right, of a heroic death, mm -hmm. the idea that many knew more, t you know, uh, people understood they were mortal just as well as we do today, but they thought one could make up for the limits of this life by really going out in a blaze of glory, by dying for some sort of noble cause, and that way they would be remembered. And so uh, uh, martyrdom was not something that was feared by everybody. In fact, it was embraced as a noble way to die. In the second part, we turn to an argument that uses martyrdom as its base for claiming the resurrection really happened. Uh, that's the die for a lie argument again. So many of these disciples who claim to have witnessed the resurrection were willing to die for what they believed. And so perhaps that is good evidence that the, what they witnessed really did happen. Because why would all these people die, knowingly die for something they knew was a lie? But we talked about in that episode how there's virtually no evidence to conclude the disciples were actually martyred. Mm -hmm. We don't have reliable accounts of how most of the apostles died. In just the few cases of Jesus' followers that we do have their deaths documented, James, Stephen, or James, the brother of Jesus, in all of those cases, they either didn't see the resurrection or their deaths were not – it wasn't clear from the circumstances of their deaths that they died because they believed in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. In this final part, we're going to add just a few kind of concluding remarks that we didn't have time to go over in the previous episodes. Some people are, of course, going to ask, what about, other, what about other people, people other than the apostles who witnessed the resurrection? Don't they count as uh, some sort of evidence that the resurrection took place? Though the Bible does mention that there were as many as 500 people who witnessed the resurrection, we don't learn who they are. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they s claim to have seen a bodily resurrection or just a vision of the resurrected Christ. And we don't know if any of them died for their belief, which is kind of the important part of this argument. Another point about that is uh, that a lot of times uh, in ancient history you would have uh, personal visions uh, rewritten later as real happenings that were mm -hmm. that had a large amount of witnesses. You get the same thing in Constantine, the two different accounts of, of Constantine's uh, personal vision uh, where he he dreams that there's this you know conquer by this sign you know the cross mm -hmm. uh, in another narrative it's it's the entire army sees this on the battlefield uh, mm -hmm. so that that that's a, a relevant thing as well yeah. More, yeah, in this, more recently the Mormons actually who claimed to have seen the golden tablets when you when they interviewed them again they said well I saw it in a vision right you know so this is something that's even that's used all the time yeah. saw is in quotes I'm making air quotes I saw it 
And there's reason to believe that that could be what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the passage that where this is mentioned is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, uh, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, hmm. and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. So wake him up. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Hmm. Now, the thing about that passage is, first of all, right, of, of course, he doesn't mention any of them. There's no way the readers of this of this letter could go back and verify this claim. So yep. it's pretty cheap. He's just throwing out a round figure. 500 people saw yes. this. But the interesting thing is that Paul includes his own vision of Jesus. Right. The one where, that knocked him off his horse yep. back when he was Saul and made him go blind and which, led him to become yep. a Christian. Which means the context is ambiguous here. If he's including himself as one that Jesus appeared to, and we know we didn't see him bodily, then right. we can't tell from that how these 500 people saw him. Right. We right. just can't say if it's a different scenario or if just like Paul, they had visions. And I think everybody recognizes that visions of a resurrected Christ are pretty cheap as far as evidence that the resurrection took place. Jesus actually did a, a, a tour of small house parties after he was resurrected. That's where those 500 came he, he from. He did love played the parties. A, an acoustic he, uh, set in someone's backyard, and, you know, he, he popped around a bit. Reunion tour, JC yeah. and the boys. <laughs> <laughs> One interesting point that's connected to this, uh, John Loftus, who hopefully will be on the show pretty soon. Fingers uh, crossed. Though that's not that's not a uh, certainty at this moment. If you don't know John Loftus, he uh, writes the Debunking Christianity blog, a counter-apologist of some note. He was even personally uh, – I think he went to school with William He Lynn studied Craig. under Craig, yeah. yeah. Loftus points out that one thing that we do know is that some of the people who saw the supposedly resurrected Jesus weren't really convinced. Hmm. It is sad that we don't know who these people were and that we don't have any rationale as to why they weren't convinced. What about Thomas? But, well, we know, yeah, yeah Thomas, yeah, sure. of course, needed to investigate more closely. Stick his um, fingers in it. But magically not until the last gospel. But Loftus, <laughs> Loftus makes an interesting point. Uh, he says, Paul mentions these 500 witnesses who saw Jesus. Now, if we assume those are bodily, that's the bodily resurrected Jesus, and 500 people saw them. Mm-hmm. When we get to Peter's first sermon in Acts, at which comes right after Jesus' ascension event, at that point, Acts tells us that all the believers are collected, they're gathered right there, mm-hmm. and they total 120 in number. Mm-hmm. So if you have 500 people who witnessed Jesus and only 120 in a form. believe it. And a couple weeks later, there's only 120 believers in the <laughs> church. He's saying that's three out of four people who apparently witnessed this and didn't believe. So if we're actually looking to the textual evidence here mm-hmm. to try to put together, you know, how that that's a pretty compelling evidence that whatever evidence that it was was not was most not compelling. Persuasive, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty compelling evidence that no one found that evidence compelling. 
only a small number of people. Well, the now, ones that I, were I sitting close the, enough could see the fishing yeah. line holding up the marionette Jesus. <laughs> so that really kind of ruins yeah. the illusion. Depending the on how the, the shadows third, third or fourth oh. rows, they, 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 they were really impressed I, people up close. It probably happened a lot like – The guys in the back are going, what? It happened a lot like Life of Brian where there was people in the back that couldn't hear or people or people in the front heckling like, you know, there were two men. What were their names? I don't know. He's just making it up. Uh, yeah, I prefer the interpretation that Paul just made that up. Yeah. That 500 figure up. So, well, it's, a, it's, a, uh, I don't think it's, it's such a perfect number good, to throw out. Yeah. There. It's not good secular biblical scholarship to no. make an argument out of this, but at least the way the apologists are handling the text, if you want to step in and play their game, mm-hmm. I think that should be submitted as counter evidence to mm-hmm. this claim, mm-hmm. right? What about all the people who didn't believe it? Nevertheless, here's the problem with using the New Testament as evidence for the resurrection. And that is, in, as far as the Gospels go, I don't think you're going to find more discrepancies in any other portion of the Gospels than you will in the resurrection mm-hmm. and the post-resurrection accounts. People who are familiar with the show or no biblical criticism have a textual reason why. It tends to be that the Gospels right, agree the most when something was written in Mark. Mm-hmm. They tend to diverge and discrepancies appear as soon as their narratives tread on waters that Mark didn't. We know that the Gospel of Mark ended with the open tomb and the females uh, at the tomb who were too frightened to share it with the, with the apostles. Hmm. Since everything else about the, resurre- the post-resurrection account is not found in Mark, it's not surprising then that we find details all over the board. Any kind of chronology goes out the window. Since we've rehearsed those verses in the past on this show, I'm not going to do a comprehensive breakdown. But I would pose this to apologists as a kind of challenge. If you want to make a credible scriptural argument, right, that we should believe in the resurrection, I think at very least you need to answer these questions. What did Mary report to the disciples? Has Jesus' dead body been stolen from the tomb, or did she report the good news that Jesus had risen? Was she visited by the angel and Jesus before or after she reported this to the disciples? Did the women enter the tomb before or after witnessing the angel? How many disciples doubted at first, and how many believed? What were the instructions Jesus left as to where he could be found? Did Jesus first appear to the disciples in Galilee, or did he appear in Jerusalem? Was Thomas there at his first appearance, or was he not there? Did Jesus ascend at Bethany on the same day that he resurrected, or Mount or the Mount of Olives 40 days after he was resurrected? And after you answer all that, how do you map Paul's chronology onto this account, which doesn't seem to match any of them? I think until those discrepancies and ambiguities in the text are resolved, you really can't make a credible scriptural argument that this resurrection occurred. Nevertheless, I have heard, uh, and I think even I was at a debate where Justin's opponent threw this at him. There are some apologists who still insist that if they can make a case that the Bible is historically accurate and that there were eyewitness accounts to these, uh, we we should just believe that a miracle took place, Hmm. that that's sufficient enough. Hmm. Good enough for me. Just like, like modern miracles where we just assume, oh, if people saw a statue crying, then it it must be true. Right. right? If they could give yeah. you a decent layout of the city they're in and know mm-hmm. the current events from the past couple of weeks, then why not 
Yeah. You know? and, the, and, and they'll say, right, you're, you're just making your uh, – if you're going to dismiss miracles just because they're miracles, this is a supernatural bias, anti-supernatural right. bias, or this is just a naturalistic bias. They'll claim that's why we're disregarding all this scriptural evidence. What threshold of evidence would be sufficient to accept that a miracle had taken place? That's a tricky question. That's going to get heavy into philosophy, and we're not going to take it up on this episode. But I did just want to throw out these two other examples of miracles around that time that do have eyewitness accounts to them and that I don't think, I don't think Christian apologists would really consider to be historically reliable. The first is Herodotus often called the father of history because he sought out eyewitness testimony. He was the first guy to, to do that, yeah. to, to really try to write history as it happened. One of the first, yeah. yeah. And one of the first to apply you know, slightly more critical methods of research, mm-hmm. at least more than any other author in antiquity. He wasn't perfect, but he was right. better than the others. His book, Histories, is full of pagan magic and miracles. If you look at chapter 7 through 9, You'll find all sorts of miracles, including how the temple at Delphi defended itself from siege (laughs) by sending down bolts of lightning and magic floating weapons. Uh, And we don't look at that and say, well, Herodotus got a whole lot else right in his history of the – what are the Peloponnesian Wars? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So therefore, we have to grandfather in all these metaphysical claims. Totes happened. It's your anti-self-defending temple <laughs> bias. Why don't we still yeah. have those? <laughs> or uh, the other one I was going to mention, uh, and I, I think I need to – it's been a while since so these are old notes of mine, but I think I have to give a nod to Richard Carrier for, for first bringing some of these to my attention. There's tons of testimony about uh, the god Asclepius, so many inscriptions in various temples to this god – and these inscriptions are first-hand accounts of people who are blind, mute, lame, paralyzed, hmm. being healed at their temples by praying oh, sure. to that god. And this includes some pretty impressive uh, healing miracles that even Jesus couldn't really claim, uh, such as um, actually healing dismembered body parts. Oh. Uh, god hates amputees. Yeah. Well, not not the god Asclepius. There are two centuries of worth, worth of these inscriptions, not just a handful of sources that are parroting each other. Right. These are first-hand accounts, which I don't think the New Testament can claim that. You can find these from the 4th to the 3rd century BCE all around the Mediterranean, not in one location. Again, if eyewitness testimony and that sort of thing is enough, that's that's the bar we want to jump. I think the Christian apologist needs to explain why they would accept Christian miracles but would reject these. Finally, in conclusion, kind of wrapping up this this series, of course, is the psychological concern. Did they actually believe it was a lie? The, the whole point of this argument, right, is predicated on the idea that they would have known and they would have been actively perpetuating this falsehood hmm. about Jesus. But I think we know enough about Psychology. We know enough about the psychology of religious individuals, especially persecuted cults. People can go through some amazing psychological gymnastics 
to continue believing things that they might otherwise have reason to doubt. I mean, if the, if the argument is that to the extent you're willing to put your ass on the line for something and die for it, therefore you really, really must believe it's true. That Actually, what I think about when I hear that argument is the recent uh, repressed memory crisis, mm-hmm. or I guess recent, a couple decades ago. In, in psychology. As recent as Waco. Well, yeah, that's true. It, when you're talking about 2,000 years ago, Two, yeah, sure, two decades sure, is yeah. recent, but that, that I was trying to say that even in recent history, you could say that people, yeah. uh, rather than having this dichotomy where you tell something that's the truth that you believe to be true or you're lying about it, mm-hmm. here we have a, a bunch of patients who you know are in some gray area in the middle where they kind of believe something's true and then through the course of therapy or hypnosis or mm-hmm. all these like things that we now have – debunked as being manipulative, Mm -hmm. then they come to believe something. Now, you can make the argument with them. Why would you break up your family? And this was often suggested too by proponents of these repressed memories as being valid. Yeah. Why would they lie about something that's that horrible that right. would split something up that's a family, hurt their parents. accuse your dad yeah. of sexual abuse when he didn't actually do it? So if they're doing this and it has these consequences, they really, really, really must have believed it and it actually happened. Mm-hmm. But think about that. You know, maybe some people were lying, but probably the majority of them weren't lying. It's that they were in an area where there's something that was a fantasy or a suggestion got solidified over the course of time. And often they acted on these things. Uh, and that paints them, uh, not to beat dissonance to death, but it painted them into a corner. Hmm. Once you've already made that accusation, once you've said, I think I was sexually abused, and it actually explains a lot about my life, and therefore it must have been my family, there's little, you don't have any room out of that. You have to sort of move forward, and what better way to do it than to be absolutely convicted that that, yes, yes, I'm sure that it happened. Look at all this time and money I've spent investing in this belief. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? And that Candida Moss stuff about the proud tradition of dying for something you believe in, I think, makes this even more plausible now. Now we have a good cultural reason Mm -hmm. why to them, some of them, yeah, dying for a lie might have been, even if they did realize it was a lie, which they wouldn't necessarily have had to. Uh, Even if they did, there's plenty of motivation available to them to want to keep this up. You can go and you can go to your death. Or you can survive and just be known as the liar. Right. You know, right. the scam artist. Like, really, that's a preferable way to, to mm-hmm. live? In conclusion, the die for a lie argument really never gets off the ground. It's amazing to me how how people advance that with real confidence and real certainty as mm-hmm. if, as if it, it, it's just the kind of clinching argument for the resurrection. Uh, but as we've shown over the course of these past three episodes – it rests on very little evidence, and in fact, it seems that the argument itself isn't even valid to begin with. Now, recently, the Boy Scouts of America made some news in becoming a little bit more gay, right? Uh Big deal, and this is something we've talked about over the years. The you mean beyond just the kerchiefs, yes, and the colorful badges, yeah, and the short shorts. Um, stereotyping. Just I will recently. not stand for stereotyping of Boy Scouts here. Yep. They do not wear kerchiefs and short. Wait, yes, they yeah, do. They do. We, we've, uh, did we talk about this before with our various histories of Boy Scouts? I remember it's saying that yeah, I, was I was a scout, and I was somebody in else the Christian was Boy Scouts. I was in the um, the cadets. Yeah, because I, I was telling people weeblow. I made it up to uh, what's Insert the your own joke what's there. above <laughs> Tenderfoot, second class scout. Okay, yeah. yeah. Now, um, just recently, the Boy Scouts of America changed a long-standing policy that would allow uh, gay scouts 
decades now, I guess, for as long as they've been around. So they finally did change it. They finally did change it. When we last saw this story, yes. they were delaying that decision. But not leaders, just the scouts. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's kind of the, the bummer of it is that they did say the scouts who are gay or come out as gay while they're in the scouts are allowed to stay in the scouts or allowed to join the scouts as openly gay, which is a big deal. That mm-hmm. is a really good thing that they've done. They delayed discussing whether or not um, uh, any of the scoutmasters, any of the leaders could be openly gay because oh, okay. um, that's still an issue. As, as it stands now, you cannot be openly gay and be a, a Boy Scout leader. What is, what is this? I mean, what's the – I don't see the disconnect here. Is it that fear that adult – Adult Field scout leaders are potential pedophiles. It's exactly yeah. that. It's uh, well, and they certainly wouldn't say as much, but that is, uh, I'm sure, FIBA files. That's, or that's the rationalization. Yeah. Although you know, so, it's very Solomonic in, it, in that they were trying to split the baby or whatever the metaphor is. Yeah. In that, and there, you could see that there was no way that they were going to please everybody. In yeah. some ways, the scouts were they're going to lose the moderate and liberal people if they don't allow somebody. Mm. But they're going to lose the conservative element if they allow, you know, leaders definitely. But now we see that they're even losing they, conservatives. They've lost the conservatives yeah. no matter anyway, what. Anyway, there is no way out of this that they could have, like, retained everybody. Yeah. So I'm hoping what what does happen now is that the Boy Scouts goes – just says, all right, well, we've lost the conservatives. <laughs> we've lost the people that are going to care that we go one Exactly. We so might as well might just as well. let in uh, gay uh, leaders as well. But, uh, yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention – um, not too keen on this idea of allowing um, young gay men to have a place to learn how to, I don't know, make a fire and walk old ladies across the street. Yeah, they're going to uh, – Richard Land is their uh, longtime head of the, the Southern Baptist group. He says that they're going to have their convention and vote on this, and he's almost – he says there's a, quote, 100 percent chance mm-hmm. that they're going to disaffiliate. And a lot Which of means the, pulling their funding. It means yeah. not having the churches available to the scouts as meeting locations. A lot of the, the local churches have already started to do that yep. where they – you know, the troops meet at churches or things like mm-hmm. that or sponsor them, and they've already started to do things like disaffiliate on a local level. Yeah, uh, which is the Christian thing to do, according to uh, uh, one pastor, um, that, you know, Christians shouldn't affiliate themselves with these homosexual loving groups. Well, They'll be better off for the homosexuals and the Boy Scouts if they don't. Yeah, true. Well, well, where, I mean, where's the consistency? The Are they gonna, do they, have they disaffiliated from, like, schools where there might be yeah. gay kids that allow gay kids? Are they going to disaffiliate from any institution that has that allows gay people? I mean, mm-hmm. that seems rather... It seems like well, they it, applied rather inconsistently. And quite frankly, they would if they had the, the choice. The, these same people who are disaffiliating from the Boy Scouts wouldn't support, yeah. a, if they could manage it, any company that supports gay rights. That yeah, allows- these are the same kind of people that, that won't – or that boycott places like Home Depot because yeah. they support gay pride parades. That's right, yes. Which, yeah. which by the way, shop at Home Depot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. fair enough. Ed, Ed Brayton on Dispatches from the Culture Wars did a excellent – breakdown of that that if you were to consistently boy scout all or boy scout <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm boy scouting this time. oh <laughs> well that should now become a term for that something should be. <laughs> right instead of uh jerry rig we should say boy scout that thing yeah, yeah. Um, but uh make it more gay if you were to boycott every organization that has sponsored the homosexual agenda mm-hmm. in scare quotes you, you know, he he showed pretty well how you 
pretty much couldn't buy food from a, any right. major food distributor. You couldn't ever get on an airline to fly anywhere. You couldn't use a computer because yeah. they were invented by a gay man. Yeah, you couldn't so use Facebook. You couldn't uh, use an iPhone. Very interesting article showing just how hard it would yeah. be to be consistent well, on they, that. Now, they have their own. Yeah. There's groups like I think they're called Royal Ambassadors or Challengers that are the religious version of Boy Scouts. That these they always groups, have the most adorable names. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of terrifying. <laughs> the Conquistadors? Yeah, the, the little... That's little crusaders for Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you bring disease. I got the crusading badge. There's my sword and the, the bloody sword. But they I have their – This one for killing a Muslim. They're, they're going to have their parallel organizations, which right. is interesting because that's kind of – I mean that happened on a church level with like the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Schism into mm-hmm. the liberal and the conservative wings and, and that's – now it's funny how institutions are – are gonna that's just gonna be like that where there's they gonna be Christ, Christian versions of things and mm-hmm. then there's the everybody else's version of things. I guess you know you could call it secular version of it, well and, and the, the other thing parallel sh- Christian universe continues. Yeah. <laughs> what we should say about the Boy Scouts too, and I'm I'm not a fan of the Boy Scouts. They are a religious group. They prefer religion over non-religion. Try, try joining as an atheist. I was going to yeah. say. I mean, if you think if you think gay people have had it bad in the Boy Scouts, try being non-religious in the Boy Scouts, and you'll have the exact same thing happen. Be, try being a gay atheist in the Boy Scouts. That will not. Here's work your out atheist well for badge, you. boy. Hey, this doesn't have anything on it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Empty like your soul. Put that on your sense. It's, it's just a god. It's just a blank. It's a black hole. circle. How am I supposed to sew this on? It's black. Like Put so this I, in your heart. I mean, I, I don't say that to take away from what they did here because this is a good thing. This, I mean, let's face it. It had to happen. This was not something they were going to get away yeah, with for, really for much longer. <laughs> but uh, they'll rebound from this. Yeah, absolutely. It's still – the Boy Scouts are still not like – I'm not signing up my kids. I have girls, so that makes it easy. But, um, you know, it's still not uh, an ideal organization in a lot of ways. But this is a good thing, and, and I'm hoping since they're losing all of their support from their conservative a-hole constituents that they will finally go the step further and say, you know, our leaders can be gay. And let's face it, there are probably many um, Boy Scout leaders who are gay and, and don't come out of the closet for this reason. The question is, after this, what's Thanks, next? Luke. When are they going to start like letting goats be Boy Scouts <laughs> and cows? Oh. And aliens. Yeah. <laughs> critical. We need to so have our own organisms get badges too. How about how about critical thinking secular scouts? Why don't we have that? We've got Camp Quest. We probably wouldn't be able to get anything done. You'd be like, okay, you guys go over and tie that down. Why should I? You're in a, you're arbitrary authority figures. Do you think being old makes you authority? Oh, yes. Oh, Raising secular I'm starving kids. to death here. Somebody Luke, chop up some firewood. Luke, welcome to my nightmare um, and my daily life. One and the same. Uh, so we'll, of course, keep you posted on more scouting news. It's time now to turn to some God Things Like You. Yeah, it's funny that we should be talking about the the die for a lie type stuff. And you know, my I guess listeners probably know that my favorite topics involve things like uh, rationalizations of morality and and hypocrisy and things like that. Because management. Yes, your measurement theory. Some of the, 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 the way that people do mental gymnastics, essentially. Um, there's been, I have a backlog of studies because I've been delving more into this research for some of my writing and my, the things that I'm working on now research wise. But 
if I could turn this around, what about if people uh, would they kill for a lie? Uh, there was an interesting study that I read the uh, recently uh, published in the Journal of Theoretical Criminology. Um, by the lead author, whose name is Topali, I believe you pronounce it, but it's called, entitled, and get this title, With God on My Side, The Paradoxical Relationship Between Religious Belief and Criminality Among Hardcore Street Offenders. Mm. Intrigued, I read on. <laughs> um, I read but, on. but what they did was simply is, is interview prison inmates uh, about their reconciliation between their religious beliefs and their criminal activities. But most people in prison are not religious. That's, see, that's the thing that, that atheists always point out is that, you know, the, that the prisons are chock-a-block full of religion and mm-hmm. there's, you'd be hard-pressed probably to find that many hardcore atheists in prison. In fact, many people convert in there or at least – Like Malcolm X, for example. Yeah. They find God in order to either mitigate their sentencing if mm-hmm. you want to be cynical right. or if you want to be genuine that, to get their lives back together. But, right. but nonetheless, what they found out, what this author found in his interviews, I think they interviewed uh, – let's see. How many people? About, 40, about 50 people roughly that were in for serious crimes. So like murder, robbery, carjacking. And almost all of them – Carjacking profess- is a murder to carjack? Nobody takes my car, Dave. <laughs> okay. All right. Nobody takes the, the Civic. Yeah. I mean the, uh, the SUV. Nobody takes that Honda Civic. Nobody takes my <laughs> suburban my SUV. Civic when they pry it from uh, my cold day. But uh, what they found was is that the, almost all of these people were religious believers. But more surprisingly is that many of them actually – reconciled or even justified, you could say, their crimes with their Christian beliefs there. That is, they said things like either that God was essentially cool with what they're doing or some really creative rationalization. So let me just give you some examples of some of the fellows that he interviewed here. Um, this is a guy whose name is Triggerman, probably not his birth name, I'm guessing. But- <laughs> Trigger- and if it was, shame on his parents. But uh, he's, he didn't accept that the, uh, his murder had any eternal consequences. He said, anything can be forgiven. We live in hell, and you can do anything in hell. God has to forgive, even if they don't believe in him. Okay. <laughs> or um, another guy said that uh, uh, that there is a hell, but the hell's on earth, and we, we're trying to fight to get to heaven. We're already in hell. So uh, apparently that angle is that their conditions are so bad that they had to do what they did. Yeah. I guess in, in some level. But, I mean, he's he's tech, on some theological readings. He's right about the whole. I, I we mean, live separate from God, therefore the we're in hell. That, that's the whole myth that like re- religious morality works by promising you an afterlife in heaven if you're good and a fire and brimstone in hell if you're bad. But actually, most Christian sects don't believe that your final destination is at all determined on your morality, just right. on whether or not you yeah. accept so, Jesus. Some of them said mm-hmm. little prayers. So before he's not their, all that incorrect. <clears throat> they would say prayers for their or before their crimes so that they're covered, wow. for example, nice. if they get killed. Or some of them said that – here's one. This is creative too, that um, – that the people that they're doing this to are also bad, and so that Jesus would approve of them, like retribu- getting retributive justice mm, on the people. Dexter defense. Yeah. <laughs> so, like for example, uh, it doesn't count against me because I'm giving them punishment for Jesus. One of the offenders said. He's like Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he, the, with the, strike down with great vengeance. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the bottom line, though, is that in many cases, what the authors of this said, and they were sounded a little bit disturbed for the, by this, but that was is that. The pushing of religion often in prisons doesn't necessarily imply that it's going to have some kind of salubrious effect on these people where it's going to cure up. If anything, it, you know, it might not have any effect at all. They just mm-hmm. might w- twist the religion to conform with 
their behavior as it already exists. Right. If we only right. taught better theology in our prisons. Yeah, that's going to be the answer from the other <laughs> side. It's just the theology must be all whack. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw in, uh, in our episode uh, Reason Behind Bars, we mm-hmm. looked at the recidivism rates for people who graduated from mm-hmm. these programs and they weren't, they weren't any good. Now, once you control for the, the, the selection effect, they can pick and choose the people yeah. who are probably more stable. Right. Uh, that there, in other words, there really isn't anything in the religious content that is like anti-criminal. If for, in as many cases, it might seem to work. Those people might have cleaned up their act anyway for secular reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so again, my interest in that was from the standpoint though of you could you could justify pretty much almost anything with, with enough of a context. Um, and I do. And I do. And. Um, I, another article that I found re- interesting recently has to do with, and I'm probably going to talk about this more in future episodes, but that is the way that people, the relationship between factual beliefs of things being objectively true and what you want to be true, or in this case, your moral intuitions. I've talked in this mm-hmm. show before about some of the theories of intuitive morality where something feels good on a gut level as opposed to you know coming up with specific reasons. But this is a, a, a paper that was published recently. Uh, the author's name is Leo and Ditto, uh, but they called it What Dilemma? Moral Evaluation Shapes Factual Belief. And just like the title implies, what they're arguing here is that many people make a moral assessment of how something feels and then garner together facts that support or don't support what their intuition is anyway. So listeners might recall that I've talked before about the theories of Jonathan Haidt, mm-hmm. H-A-I-D-T, and his five different areas of morality. And he's always argued that Gut decisions govern everything. That you have a f- initial reaction that's gut level, like disgust or you know uh, outrage, and then the rational part comes later on, where you generate reasons for this. But what this theory suggests, though, is that it's slightly critical of it. But this paper suggests that people, uh, if you get out your philosophical hats, the types of morality decisions that are deontological—that is, an action being inherently right or wrong—so, like in a Kantian sense, something is always wrong to lie or always mm-hmm. wrong to murder—as opposed to a consequentialist sense of morality, where it's utilitarian. Like, what are the reasons this is good or bad? Right. Those are often juxtaposed as being opposite. So, a Kantian would say, you know, it doesn't matter whether something is ultimately beneficial if it's deontologically right or wrong. It's just right or wrong always. Right. Killing, con- killing is wrong no matter what. Yeah, whereas a Jeremy Bentham type of, uh, of consequentialist would say you add up the pluses and minuses. If such and such happens and it's on balance positive, then it's good. Right. So so the Nazis knock on your door yes, and you're hiding you know, Jews in the basement. Uh, the Kantian would say you wouldn't lie because lying is, is, is always wrong. You have is to in tell principle the wrong, divorced from context, right? In the Whereas the consequences would say sometimes lying's okay if yeah, it saves right. someone's life lying or is the right thing to do in that right. situation. I because once you take into consideration the the context and yeah. you have a a kind of independent uh, field of values that you're driving towards, then you see what your what the action is that was recommended by that goal. You know, most people have a uh, if you've had an experience in the real world, though, you notice that what odd thing is that people's – those things often seem to co-occur. That is, there's very few people that say something's right or wrong. I feel that something's right or wrong, but it doesn't matter whether it's ultimately harmful or beneficial. I just feel that way anyway. Mm-hmm. Usually we find a way to make those two things fit, and that's the point of this article. Mm-hmm. So they use the example of like – people might remember that trolley scenario that's often used to trundle out to, to, to show that people's rational decisions of – in the first case where you, the trolley is going to kill five people, but you push a button to get it on the other track and it 
unfortunately kills one kills person, one person yeah. a utilitarian would say you should do that because you're saving right. four people on balance killing one you know to, for five and then the other alternative scenario the active harm where you're on a footbridge above the track and you are standing next to a big fat guy and you you know should you push him over if it derails the train that's the same numbers a consequentialist would say you're still killing one person to save five but people are much more reluctant to do that often the explanation is given is that because it is Emotionally unpleasant. It's a more intimate action. It's an intimate uh, And action. I've seen a train hit a cow. It doesn't even stop them. And there's no way this guy who's out oh, of the like house weighs as much you're as like my students It's now. funny that you should you know, see you know, that. This is every, every freaking thought experiment we ever do in class. They always try to find a way out. And I'm like, no. it's not how creative you are. Mm-hmm. Now notice, what if you could <laughs> ask the people, damn though, question. what if you could ask people how likely is it that the fat man would actually derail the train? Or... How much pain would he suffer? Yeah. Would it be over really quick or would he linger? What they did is in, in one of the studies in this paper is that they actually asked people, you know, first of all, how many people would push? And like we've said about – in this case, it was like 80 percent of people said they would never under any circumstances push the guy off the bridge mm-hmm. even if it would save those people. But when they asked those people who would, you know, would he suffer? Well, how likely is it that it would derail the train? What they found is that um, the – the people who uh, would not do it, would not push the guy, were also li- uh, less likely to believe that it would be effective at derailing the train and mm-hmm. saving the workmen and that it would actually cause him a lot of pain if they were to do that. That is, what they're doing here is bringing in a consequentialist thing of cost-benefit into what they initially said would be just deontological. No, I would never harm somebody and shove right. them off the bridge. Right. And so they had other scenarios like this with things like capital punishment or with uh, stem cell research where uh, people – you know, a, a deontological defense of capital punishment or, or, or not having capital punishment would be it's always wrong to kill somebody even if it's the state mm-hmm. or that – you know, whereas a consequentialist defense would be it doesn't stop – crime anyway or it doesn't act as a deterrent. So what they found is, as I've been saying, is that the people – it tends to co-occur. The people who make the deontological thing saying it's right or wrong, period, also have consequentialist reasons for why they have more than – so that doesn't seem particularly mind-blowing. But the thing I think is key in this study is that they did an experimental manipulation as the the final study. That is, they Mm. altered people's opinion by having them read either an essay for or against something, but it was always deontological. So like Again, capital punishment, uh, it's barbaric as opposed to uh, it's just desserts. They have it coming to them. Notice mm-hmm. there's no consequences there, no utilitarian. It's all – it's good or bad for you know gut-level reasons or you – know. right. but what they found was is that the people uh, by, by manipulating these people, by giving them strong essays that it's barbaric as opposed to it's, it's just desserts, it actually changed their consequentialism. In, a set, in essence, by saying something is just wrong, 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 it caused the people to then say, but it also wouldn't work, wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Or it's right, right, right. Nudging them in that direction, they tended to say things like, well, uh, it actually is beneficial to do capital punishment. So again, experimentally is a much more strong way of altering it that you can make people more consequentialist about something by altering their deontological sense of something as being inherently right or wrong. Hmm. Hmm. Our brains are freaking complex. We've seen this in an apologetics context sure. with, say, Paul Copen and the genocide justifications. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how the justifications will flip-flop. I, I wonder if consequentialist reasons have priority for people uh, psychologically. Well, because, the way that the- uh, w- with Copen, uh, he starts by trying to argue, look, 
this was the right thing to do. <laughs> these these people, the you know, the Canaanites were ruthless and evil people. Mm-hmm. Uh, God was actually being more merciful by killing those babies than letting them grow up in this, you know. And then once yeah, that showing fails, his, his showing his yeah. ethnic essentialism, right, mm-hmm. right. Once that fails, then <laughs> then he goes well. But at the end of the day, God's laws are not our laws, and. <laughs> You know, and if he commanded it, it must have been right. Yeah, there seems to be a uh, that we in our culture, at least nowadays, and we can be glad for this. I think that there seems to be advice to come up with consequential reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not sure. enough just to say something is wrong because I say so or because God says says so. That you have to have reasons that are amenable to everybody, scientific right. evidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. so we see this in things like, you know, uh, stem cell research where people are saying it's beneficial or harmful on a scientific reasons. Or let's take like the other example they give in the articles like um, condom use in schools. You know, that, that right. the, the conservatives who say that it's wrong to teach kids about sex, they also coincidentally come up and saying, but the condom breaks a lot or that they're not mm-hmm. effective or that they have all this stuff that sounds – ostensibly logical evidence based but really we're all thinking that you know it's kind of funny how it lines up with what you thought anyway right. that you right. shouldn't use condoms that they are you know that they don't work you know i was wondering um you know back to the trolley problem is it relevant why the fat man is so fat does he have a glandular problem <laughs> or is he just an irresponsible eater they've actually had it buried, coming. they've buried the status of who he is uh in experiments by th- saying things like he's an outgroup member like he's a terrorist fat man he's rush limbaugh yeah no or he's going to die anyway they, they have some versions of the scenario where they say he's likely to he has cancer and you know that he's, he's having, a heart, anyway. he's having a heart attack there on the platform This is incredible. I would recommend if you're interested, they've gotten incredibly sophisticated in tweaking that sort of scenario. Hmm. In fact, I I was at a convention recently in Washington, D.C., the Association for Psychological Science, and I heard a lecture by uh, Joshua Green. He was actually on – he's a neuroscience – I guess an experimental philosopher who studies trolley decisions with people's head in the brain scanner. Is this guy who was on uh, Radiolab? Yes. He's been on Radiolab. He's been on Scientific American Frontiers with Alan Alda when they did this. But he he's actually he, his he has a book coming out this fall which I'm really looking forward to called Moral Tribes, mm-hmm. and as the name implies, the title implies that he says a lot of our moral decision making is on the basis of our membership in a group. Our group mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We justify whether something's right or wrong, whether it's our group that's involved, which is fairly obvious. But he talks about some of the scenarios that they've all tweaked with this, where they do things, and and he says like you know he his quote that I thought was good is that he wouldn't trust, even though he recognizes the logic in the utilitarian argument of shoving the fat guy over. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't trust anybody who would make that decision too quickly. He wants to see you kind of sweat a bit rather than saying, well, shove him over. What are you going to do? Because that's what psychopaths do. Is exactly. They make the decision yeah. very utilitarian-wise. Right. But what's also d- d- disturbing to him was that the amount of people that say that they would not shove the fat guy, which, again, is going to kill five people if you don't, mm-hmm. doesn't very much when they way increase the, the destruction of the trolley. So there's one where the trolley goes on and not only – you know it doesn't just flatten five people. It goes on and for whatever reason, it causes – it runs into like a dam or a dike that floods, an orphanage floods or, a city yeah. and there's so like 30,000 people get flooded out. If you don't shove the fat guy, and it doesesn't change the response that much. Hmm. That is, you know, twenty percent of people would shove the fat guy to save, you know, five people, and like twenty five percent or something like that would do it if it to would save, save city. an entire city. So in that case, you do want, I guess, to some extent, you do want somebody to do 
if I don't shove this guy, a lot of people are going to die, so shove the fat guy off. You know what? And right. I'm feeling a lot of resentment towards this fat guy because if he would just <laughs> jump himself, yeah, really, I would it not be would responsible. Big guy. Would you That's talk true. the fat guy into killing himself? If, if this and were, does that absolve you? <laughs> if this was a Greco-Roman context, he would have accepted his his fate as a exactly noble right. death. Exactly right. Yes. He yes. should just know, and that pisses me off. I'm going to shove him because yeah. he ought to know. <laughs> You dummy, why aren't you doing this? Why are you pushing me into a moral quandary? No, he was never heavy enough to stop that trolley. Really? Do you think he would have died for a lie? (laughs) (laughs) And it comes full circle. (laughs) But uh, as a side note there, I mentioned that I was at this conference listening to these interesting psychologists. I also had the chance to just chat briefly with one of my faves that I talked about in the show before, Will Gervais. Name dropper. Name dropper, who's uh, done a lot of interesting research on distrust of atheists. Our listeners might remember mm. that experiment or the uh, some of his stuff uh, on. I think a lot of our listeners live that experiment, actually. Yes, I'm, I'm morality and priming, but he has a very interesting paper that's recently out on atheism. Uh, or as the, the the title of it is, the origins of religious disbelief. This is after my own heart because, as I've talked about, most studies are predicated on religious normativity. And here's an article that's on explaining people like us. Why do people disbelieve? And so some of the theories, he basically lays out really beautifully some of the theories we've talked about on the show before. So, for example, he suggests one route to disbelief would be the intuitive route where you have low theory of mind or mentalizing where you just don't get projections of gods out into the ether. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've talked on the show before about research with people's um, sort of Men more often than women, but they're being sort of emotionally obtuse helps not being religious because you're not out there thinking about what the universe is thinking about you. You're you're more mind blind in that respect. Mm. Uh, but there's and he suggested those sorts of reasons are different from atheism that comes about from let's say uh, cultural normativity. If you're raised in, you know. Right. Soviet Russia or even Sweden, it's you're much less likely to catch the religion bug because you look around you and it's not normative, obviously. Uh, as opposed to even other categories of, of reasons that we've talked about in the show before of analytical thinking seems to be death to religion. That is, people who tend to break things uh, are deep thinkers and think complexly and analytically about things seem to be less likely to be religious as opposed to people who are more intuitive and shoot from the emotional sort of from the cognitive hip where they say things like, oh, it just makes sense. That's why I believe in God. Hmm. So what what they suggest in their articles that these – they use the example of perfect storms of these reasons like – I mentioned Scandinavia, but also people who are scientists and such, that they have a multiple the, – the point is that they have multiple pathways that sort of add up to non-belief, that you can create you know, through analytical thinking and through being skeptical about things like psychology uh, causes you to be skeptical about your own thought processes. You're more likely to produce disbelief and that the opposite of these things, communities like we live in, uh, where you have intuitive thinking, uh, mentalizing – a normativity of religion. So um, I'm really interested in some of his research that's yeah. going to come out in the future mm-hmm. where he, where they, where we get more and more into explaining things from the point of view of why do people disbelieve? Yeah. That's what I thought was most interesting about the article is that it, in a way it was just intuitive. It, it, the categories he selected matches a lot of what we've seen in our own experience. Mm-hmm. What, you know, not all atheists are the same. <laughs> 
and uh, and arrive at it for a variety of different reasons or non-reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, what I thought was interesting would be the potential for bringing this into some of the religious pro-sociality research you do. Because once we get a – we already have a pretty good gradation of different motivations for religious belief, like intrinsically motivated religious believers or those who are religious just in the sense that they show up to a building every week. There are so many things with those distinctions you make amongst believers that will change the results in your experiments. Mm-hmm. If we saw non-believers in similar gradations, could we be able to tease out better some of what's going on with mm. non-belief? Yeah, for example, people who bec- who are apostates, to use for lack of a better word, that who used to be religious and become non-religious, do they differ from people who have always been non-religious that just yeah. are raised in – an, an apathetic environment where you know we're not you don't really have to be religion, uh, religious. So um, that's one of the I think the holy grails in this type of disbelief research is do those people differ? Are there different pathways to the same outcome? Somebody who's had to fight against religion their entire lives does it produce a different type of atheist than people who just didn't give a rip either way mm-hmm. or never saw a need to believe mm-hmm. in God to begin with? I mean, obviously in this room, since all of us were religious, we sort of have been on the other side of the fence. Yeah. What would our lives have been like if our families or wherever we grew up just didn't weren't religious in any sense? Yeah, it's a very scary thing to me too because I'm, of course, raising my children without religion, and I think, am I, you know, am I doing them a disservice? Are they going to end up? Becoming religious because they are raised without religion. They were bill against you. Screw well, you, Dad. I mean, I'm joining my, the church. That's my concern. But I, I look forward to great things from uh, from from Will Gervais because I think that he has he's on the right track in asking the types of questions that I think are the most interesting. Well, ones. he gave birth to the office, so I mean, right? Insert Gervais gotta... joke here, please. Yes, yes. Oh. That is it until I'm going to come back uh, in future episodes actually with more of the consequentialist, the ontological distinction because there's a lot of interesting studies that are coming out on that. And bring graphs. Yes. Hey, speaking, <laughs> of, uh, speaking of people using religion to justify bizarre views that they have from some other source, our shit list today is GOP Congressman Stephen Fincher. Just sounds like a villain name, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. Stephen Fincher. Congressman Fincher. Fincher. According to a article on Salon.com, Stephen Fincher, of course, supporting moves by Congress to slash $4.1 billion from food stamps and other programs that benefit the poor. And, because uh, he's a Republican and that's his job. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he gave a snappy justification for why he's going to do it. <laughs> Second Thessalonians 3... Verse 10, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. (laughs) And that was his justification for why it's good to strip the poor and needy of any kind of food assistance or anything else like that. So, uh, again, wonderful guide. This is like shooting fish in a barrel, but if we're going to use scripture for policy debates, then what about all the, you know, giving money, taking from the rich? Not the rich man who uh, needed to get into heaven by selling all of his possessions and giving it to the poor. The eye of the needle with the camel and whatnot. Yeah. 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 The rich man who had a better chance of squeezing through the eye of the needle. This verse, uh, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. I, I'm really proud of the people at Salon.com. Hmm. Uh, the author, Candace uh, Chulu Hodge, who actually decided to look up some commentaries and see the context to this verse and discovered, of course, that 
Paul is referring to, or rather pseudo-Paul, I think, is uh, referring to... Pseudo-Paul. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Because Second, Second Thessalonians barely made it. it in, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. I'm, fr- I'm fairly sure it was... Seth- yeah, it was Second barely Thessalonians made it really conflicts with First, <laughs> first Thessalonians quite a bit. And the major issue is over the end times. How close is it? First Thessalonians seems to treat the end times as if they're right around the corner. Uh, Paul, I am not can't remember if it's Thessalonians, but Paul in other places recommends people don't even get married because, look. But uh, Second Thessalonians is trying to, trying to stop some of the fallout from this apocalyptic <laughs> vision of the world because several of the people in that church were actually quitting their jobs thinking like, well, it's the end of the world. I'm not going to go yeah. into the yeah. office. Same with John. The apocalypticism just kind of falls away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Paul here is some kicking pseudo-Paul here is kicking ass of some really lazy apocalyptic types, <laughs> not making a general statement about how we shouldn't feed the poor because they're not working. Yeah. He's saying, you guys who quit your jobs and aren't doing anything because you think the world's going to end tomorrow don't deserve to be if, fed by other people's work as opposed if you're to rich, being lazy. Uh, yeah. If you're rich and you're sponging off your stock options, that's work apparently. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for that one. Stephen Fincher. Good, good on Salon for uh, calling him out on it too. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you don't often see counter apologetics in uh, <laughs> a publication like that. Should we put Wolf Blitzer on our shit list? Oh, for the tornado coverage. For the tornado comment. It's um, kind of a minor uh-oh. shit, but still it irritates yeah. me. Did it really Let's happens. put Glenn back on the shit list for thinking that that was actually a conspiracy. Oh, for our listeners who don't know, uh, who haven't heard, the after the horrible tornadoes in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. Wolf Blitzer was on the site interviewing people, and he just sort of assumed this one woman was religious by saying – because she had her baby there, and yeah. she dodged the bullet on that one. And he's like, you got to thank the Lord, right? And she said, no, I'm actually an atheist. And there was, you know, you could see he was sort of but, brought but up short. But then she very quickly said, and I don't, I don't begrudge anyone who does thank the Lord. We just don't. And she was great. You know, in fact, there are some atheist yeah, groups that are raising money response. for this yeah. particular family mm-hmm. because they did lose their home. They survived, which is great. But Well, I saw another one with that, that was a little bit more snarky where it said something along the – I'm not going to get this exact, but something mm-hmm. along the lines of, well, Wolf – uh, yes, I did thank the Lord that you know it, the tornado missed me and my child while killing a bunch of other people's and their kids, and you know, yes. it just made it sound even more horrible. She but that's did not what, actually say that, but that's the implication. That's yeah. what rational people probably yeah. think all the time, and that is yeah. is that if I would thank the Lord, that what kind of bastard would I be yeah. in that case? And then Wolf Blitzer was like, uh, he he pushed the issue several times. He was like, you got to thank the Lord, right? I mean, you got to thank. And finally, she very kind of like reluctantly said, well, actually, I'm. I'm an atheist, but but it's cool for people who do thank the Lord. And then they very quickly cut away to show like survivors camped out in a church or something. It was yeah. really like yeah. just don't get mad. Don't get mad. OK, we didn't know she was an atheist when we interviewed her. Please tell us about your belief with a God in a God with very <laughs> embarrassing priorities. Yes. Glenn, Glenn Beck thought that was undeniable that this 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 has to be a setup. That CNNs, there's some sort of atheist editor in CNN who wants to forward the atheist agenda by making Christians look bad. He specifically cited that this is to make Christianity look bad. No, it just makes Wolf Blitzer look bad, which is something he does daily. As if a tornado hitting a bunch of people and children in a school doesn't make God look bad. No, 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 no. No, I'd rather reason with my cat than reason with Glenn Beck. But it it still just kind of strikes me how his mind operates in that. 
a woman simply saying, well, <laughs> I'm not I'm religious. Atheist, yeah. That to him was a clear attack on Christianity in the news media. Proof of just, a conspiracy. Just, just somebody nicely smiling and saying, no, I, well, you know, I'm happy, but I, I, I don't believe I think it was because God. she was a nice, smiling woman with a baby right. also yeah. that caused people to say, well, because yeah, atheists aren't it. like that. Right, because they're – I can picture him like putting like an image of her like next next to like – an image of like the Virgin Mary, the baby, like they're trying to make it like <laughs> yeah, start you know, drawing lines between the two, stretching yeah. this iconography, you know. Yeah, it's a good thing it isn't sixteen hundred because then they would have said that's why the tornado hit. It's because <laughs> there's an atheist living in our town. Burn the witch. You know, Dorothy was picked up by a by a tornado too, right? Right. You know what that was? Wizard of Oz, liberal propaganda. <laughs> Did you know the Elfric bomb had uh, a vacation house in, in Holland, Michigan? I did not know that. Yeah. He was a skeptic. Yeah. His, uh, uh, some people think that um, the imagery for the uh, Emerald City, Yeah, mm-hmm. some think that was taken from some monument in Holland, Michigan, where he used to summer. Really? What? Yep. There's a Holland, Michigan connection. And, yeah. of course, the the wizard is a message of skepticism. Don't they mind know the old guy the man behind, behind the curtain. The curtain. Yep. Right. He was also uh, just – his mother was a leader in the suffrage movement. Really? Hmm. And if you notice, cool. the, all the characters, all the characters that have power in The Wizard of Oz are all women. Are women? Strong women. Good or bad. Except for Wicked, the wizard, who yes. happens to be a fraud. Who's a fraud. And doesn't know. really do anything for anyone except uh, Tell them trying what's already to take there. credit for yeah. their own merits. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, really interesting. Fascinating. Stuff behind that book. Well, uh, Wolf Blitzer's God likes to cause destruction. Let's turn to a different God who caused some destruction for a much better purpose with this week's polyatheism. While most myths focus on the escapades of great heroes like Gilgamesh, Perseus, Odysseus, Thor, Superman, and Hercules, there is often standing right alongside those heroes an equally important and often more awesome sidekick. Like Enkidu, uh, Pegasus, um, Odysseus's bag of wind, <laughs> Thor's goats, Beppo the super monkey, and um, uh, Hercules' dead children. Okay, look, actually, there's not really a lot of great sidekicks in mythology. I mean, Enkidu is good. Uh, started off strong there, but, you know, other than that... Once he went to town, uh, you know, it kind of ended yeah, for him. Yeah, yes, that's true. Uh, other than that, it's mostly a lot of red shirts, like the Argonauts and crap like that. Uh, so uh, forget I said anything. Let's let's try this again. <clears throat> Well, most myths focus on the escapades of great heroes like Gilgamesh, Perseus, Odysseus, Thor, Superman, and Hercules. Only an elite few of those heroes are lucky enough to be assisted by an equally important and often more awesome sidekick. Nailed it. Perhaps the greatest sidekick in history is, no, not Robin, R.I.P., R.I.P., none other than the right-hand man of Rama, Hanuman. The monkey god of Hindu mythology, Hanuman was the son of Vayu, the god of winds. Vayu, who appears not to have been a monkey himself, has some real explaining to do. 
Why is your son a monkey? Mm, there are questions. As a child, Hanuman leapt 9,000 miles into the air to try to grab the sun, thinking it was a ripe piece of fruit. Uh, he was made invincible by Brahma and received the gift from Indra to choose his own way of death, which is kind of a cool gift to have or a curse. Uh, Hanuman enters the narrative of the Ramayana when the hero Rama is searching for his kidnapped wife, Sita. As easily distracted as O.J. Simpson on his hunt for the real killer, Rama forgets about <laughs> Sita for a while. Apparently he's in an L.A. prison. Uh, Rama forgets about Sita for a while and helps a monkey king who has been usurped by his evil brother. After being restored to his throne, the monkey king thanks Rama for his help by giving him the full support and resources of his monkey army, a better phrase in the English language there is not, in the search for Sita, including his finest general, Hanuman. Hanuman is immediately loyal to Rama, which is something that just seems to happen to folks near Rama. He just engenders an almost fanatic degree of loyalty towards him, and not entirely deserved, but that's a discussion for a previous polyatheism. Hanuman rushes off to find the missing Sita, a task made easier by the fact that Hanuman can either skip across the water or fly. He manages to track her to Lanka, also known as Ceylon or Sri Lanka now, uh, an island which, coincidentally enough, was created by his own father by chopping off the top of a mountain and tossing it into the sea. Just as he's about to reach the shores of Lanka, a sea monster grabs him by the shadow – didn't know that was possible, did you? – yanks him beneath the water – and literally in the mouth of the beast, the quick-thinking monkey general increases his size dramatically, forcing the beast to open its jaw wide, and then he quickly shrinks himself back down and leaps out of the now gaping maw. And that's just a side adventure for Hanuman. Once on Lanka, Hanuman finds Sita held captive by the villainous Ravana. Apparently, he heard her banging on the door trying to get out while he was standing across the street eating his McDonald's, and he ran over to help her out. What do they eat? Uh, a, what do they serve in an Indian McDonald's? I, I don't know. That was a topical reference about that guy who saved those kidnapped women. Oh. Charles Ramsey. He was eating his McDonald's. And, by the way, can we just say that that guy is amazing. Super that was a rad. truly heroic <laughs> Deed, um, the kind of uh, should be commonplace heroism. He hurt a woman in distress, and rather than ignoring it, he ran towards it to help out. In my neighborhood, I just shut the window and say, "Keep it down with the dungeons." I've been to yeah, trying to study here. I'm working on a book. That's not morality, so stop screaming. These <laughs> town hipsters with their sex dungeons and hey, man, whatever you want to do, just involve me, man. <laughs> So he finds Sita and hands her a ring given to him by Rama as proof that he was not just one of Ravana's Rakshasa demons in disguise. And yet, even after being given the proof, rather than going home with Hanuman then and there, thus giving us a quick and bloodless resolution to the conflict, Sita refuses to touch another man, even a monkey man, other than her husband. Um, so Hanuman instead decides to head back to get Rama along with the other monkey warriors. But – before he did that, he decided to, to destroy as much of Lanka as he could. Uh, he created the kind of havoc that only a monkey warrior could, flinging poop, rampant masturbation, I'm sure, until he was caught by Ravana and the Rakshasa hordes. 
rather than killing him outright, which of course they wouldn't have been able to do because of all the magic and so forth, they set his tail on fire. But since Hanuman is a lemonade out of lemons kind of guy, he used his flaming tail to set fire to the rest of the island. Well done. I know, right? (laughs) He returned with Rama and the monkey army to an island that he had already pretty well destroyed single-handedly, and Sita was rescued. In the meantime, Hanuman did some other awesome sidekicky things like flying away hundreds of miles to retrieve healing herbs when Rama was wounded. And at one point, in order to show Rama how dearly he held both he and Sita, Hanuman ripped open his own chest to show a tiny Rama and Sita sitting on his heart. I know. I generally prefer showings of loyalty that don't require a rib spreader, but, you know, (laughs) Did did they they ever have kids? Oh, Sita and Rama? Yes, they did. They had twins, but of course... Mama Sita. Mama Sita. Oh, Mama Sita. Yes, but of course that was... um, She gave birth after Rama had tossed her out into the wilderness because he thought she had been unfaithful, but of course she hadn't, and boy, was his face red. Anyway, um... Hanuman's loyalty didn't end there, though. Years later, when it came time for Rama to leave Earth and return to the heavens, Rama being an avatar of Vishnu, of course, Hanuman requested that he stay on Earth for as long as Rama's name was praised. And thus, Hanuman became one of the immortals of Hinduism and lives in various shrines where he can listen to people singing the praises of Rama to this very day. So there you have it, Hanuman, Hindu monkey god, scourge of demons, destroyer of Sri Lanka, and most loyal companion an avatar could ask for. And just one more god worth not believing in. Oh, let's just do it. A stranger than fiction. Some of you may have caught the news um, that the president of Ohio State – and this is a sports-related story, so I apologize to most of our listeners. The president of Ohio State University – Gordon G. um, Gordon G. And that's not an abbreviation. That's actually his last name. um, It was recorded last December on uh, making comments about the University of Notre Dame where he said, quote – the trying father, to, they're trying to get into the Big Ten. Was the yeah, Notre Dame's trying to get into the Big Ten. I don't know what any of this means, but uh, <laughs> it's fine. Um, they're trying to get into the Big Ten, and he was explaining why, um, referring to the, the heads of Notre Dame, the fathers are holy on Sunday, and they're holy hell on the rest of the week. You can't trust those damn Catholics on a Thursday or a Friday, and so literally, I can say that. Now, this got him into some trouble, right? Because he, you know, said those damn Catholics, he was poking fun at their priests. So people are a bit upset about it. When everyone started going nuts about um, his comments about the Catholics, here came this response. You'll never guess who it came from. First, the quote. Quote, it's time for everyone to take a deep breath. I've never met President G, but it's clear from what I read that what he said was made in jest. Was it dumb? For someone in his stature, yes. But context and tone matter, as does the frequency of what may be considered an offensive remark. 
A real bigot is someone who repeatedly and maliciously attacks others. G is not such a man. End yes. quote. What a even what a even tempered and, and patient man this must be. <laughs> who this mystery man guess. must be. <laughs> Alex Trebek would would be less surprising. <laughs> In fact, who said this? Our old friend Bill Donahue of the Catholic League. Ooh. This is the guy who sends out – essentially all he does is send out faxes anytime someone says something bad about Catholics um, and complains about he birth control. He never lets one slide. He never lets anything go. And this, the head of a major university um, – actually saying those damn Catholics making fun of priests, this should be great for him. And he totally let it go. wonder why that is. The end of his statement here, um, we get a little bit of the old Donahue back. He goes on to say, quote, political correctness has gone too far. There's a douchebag I know. Yeah, uh, uh, gets better. Vice President Joe Biden has made his share of dumb remarks, some of which be, could be considered bigoted. But he's no more a bigot than is the U, uh, Ohio State University president. Now end I'm quote. confused again, too. Well, he still gets to make fun of uh, Joe Biden, but still saying he's not a bigot. What has happened to Bill Donahue here? Oh, no. Either he's mellowing with age or I would imagine that he picks and chooses his targets of shrieking at uh, – May he maybe him and uh, Pat Robertson are sharing that reefer together and uh, – <laughs> Is that what it is? Maybe that could explain why both of them have occasionally said yeah. certain things. Yeah, yeah. Pat Robertson who say. also had some fantastic things to say about the recent yeah, uh, yeah. tornadoes. But you can you – can, mm. already you know what he said. There you have it. So that's going to do it for us this time. Uh, next time, until next time, you can check out our website at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can email us your questions, comments, suggestions, and challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube slash doubtcast. And um, Luke and Jeremy have a um, an article that's recently been published that you can check out in the meantime. Where can folks uh, read your latest published work? Uh, well, you can read it in the latest edition of Free Inquiry magazine. You can mm-hmm. wait for your print copy, which I'm sure yeah. you're all subscribers to. And uh, Or uh, hopefully it will be online in the next couple of days. They haven't updated their website yet. Okay. So hopefully by the time people are hearing this, it's available online and it yeah. will certainly be available our on newsstands. For, uh, for a link. Perhaps there'll be one up by the time the show airs. Yeah, and also uh, uh, to not to, so we can just pump up our own blowfish. But the Ryan Craigon has a piece in the same issue right next to ours that's interesting as well. Uh, that as um, they combined everybody on the cover for a similar topic about how hmm. beneficial religions really are. Listeners might remember he did a sort of a, a thing last time with Free Inquiry on the tax, how much churches don't pay in tax money. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of a continuation of that whole area, that whole vein as well. Cool. All right. We will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.
But let's start off here on a sour note. Uh, Jeremy, let's uh, let's do a shit list right at the top of the show here. Uh, I don't know what you're referring to, Dave. <laughs> what shit list? What? Didn't you have a shit list? No, well, I had the Branch Davidians yeah, thing. I thought that was a shit oh. list. Damn, Damn those it. Branch Davidians for still being crazy. <laughs> they made my uh, shit list today by still believing in their uh, bitch. <laughs> All right, let's try that again. I, I was let's thinking, keep that. But we're, yes. not, we're not doing that. I think instead. you'll find as you age that everything becomes a shit list. <laughs> it really God does. Damn, this guy. Bucket uh, list fully uh, filled with shit. Keep those Branch Davidians while they're down.